Good day, everyone. Welcome to Learning Bible Truth. I am your host and teacher, Dr. Kamala D., here to take you on a tour of the Bible by reading entire books, not just one scripture of the Bible. And I will be sharing commentary with you while we read line upon line and precept upon precept of every scripture. Since you won't take the time to study and show yourself approved before God, I am bringing the scriptures to you. So get your Bibles, take out pen and paper, invite family and friends, take notes, and let's learn Bible truth. Good day, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to a new episode of Learning Bible Truth with Dr. Kamala D. Now, today's episode is special. We are not reading an epistle from the Apostle Paul. We are reading an epistle from James. His, he is referred to in the Bible as James the Just, J-U-S-T. He is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, half-brother. They had the same mother, who was Mary, but different fathers. James and Jesus' other siblings all had the same father, who was Joseph, and he was also Mary's husband. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is the son of God. Mary was a virgin. I don't want to hang on this too long, but Mary was a virgin. And she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Okay? That is why they are half-brothers. Now, today's letter is a little bit different from the letters that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the Gentile churches, Galatia, um, Ephesians, and Philippians in Philippi, and Ephesus, and Galatia. Now, and of course, the Corinthian churches, the church in Thessalonica, Paul wrote a lot of letters. They were Gentile churches. This church, on the other hand, was a church full of Jews, no Gentiles. So James was an apostle to the Jews, as well as the apostle Peter. They were apostles to the Jews. Now, you will see a significant difference in the letters, in the tone of the letter, because James and Paul are two different people, and they were writing to two different audiences. We all know that the Apostle Paul dealt a lot with false teachers entering into the, the Gentile church, trying to convert these people back over or not back over because the uh, Gentiles we talked about were never given the law and were never Judaizers. But what James was dealing with is a little different than what Paul was dealing with. James was dealing with Jews who had converted over from Judaism to Christianity and were confused about how faith works. Uh, faith without works uh, is dead. It's one of the themes of this letter. Um, James talked about prayer. Uh, James talked about uh, not showing any partiality uh, between rich people and poor people. Uh, James got on them about not being holy. Um, the, you know what? Let's get into this because I, <laughs> I will go on and on and on. We need to at least start. Now I am reading from the ESV Bible and what I'm going to do differently today 
is I'm going to give a lot of commentary, even though it will be commentary for each verse, verse by verse, instead of reading a lot of the scriptures in uh, chapters one and two, because they are the longest chapters, chapters three, four, and five are short. I can read each of those verses. And this is to save time. Um, I will probably read the first five scriptures of uh, chapter one and then give commentary uh, for the remaining scriptures. Okay. Now I am beginning at verse one in James chapter one, James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is also James's brother to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. Verse two, count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or either perseverance. Verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given unto him or given to him. Now, Let's start the commentary and I think I'm going to pick up from uh, verse one and, and just go forth until we complete this chapter. <clears throat> now, James is greeting, you know, Jesus chose, Jesus chose 12 disciples to signify the 12 tribes and thus to identify the church as the new Israel. Now, James reminds these Jewish Christians of their spiritual heritage as the people of God gathered by Jesus, the Messiah. Now in the dispersion, the tribes of Israel were scattered throughout the world by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Now they looked forward to being gathered as a people. Uh, you can cross reference this in Jeremiah 31, seven through 14 and Ezekiel chapter 37 verses 15 through 28. You can write these scriptures down and study them later. And as a reminder, I will be calling out scriptures today for you to further your study. Okay. Now, James implies that the true Israel is now also dispersed, you know, away from its heavenly homeland and oppressed, but assured of their final gathering to the Lord. Now the testing of faith, Trials test faith in order to make spiritual pilgrimages complete. Okay. Now they are a part of the good gifts. You know, God gives his people in order to make them whole. Now joy in trials. When James said this trials are designed to produce spiritual maturity and should therefore be counted as joy. Now trials are tests that challenge faith. Now I want you to understand something here. And this is in verse two, that just because a trial comes and that is considered a test is not God sending them. Okay. God doesn't tempt or test his people. And we will get to those scriptures that are in this first chapter. Now trials are tests that challenge faith. Now when trials occur, we should count it all joy, not meaning mere worldly temporal happiness, but rather spiritual, enduring complete joy in the Lord 
who is suborned over all things, including trials. Now in verse three, testing of your faith defines the meaning of a trial for the Christian. As Jesus was tested in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four, verses one through 13. So believers are tested as well. We don't have, we don't get a pass from trials and we need to understand that. Now, the Greek word testing uh, is, is, is dokemion, okay? Dokemion, which means testing, denotes a positive test intended to make one's faith genuine. You can cross-reference this with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Now, the result is steadfastness. Now, a life of faithful endurance amid troubles and afflictions. That's what that, that steadfastness means. Now, in verse four, steadfastness leads ultimately to perfection. Believers grow in holiness, but are not yet perfected in it. Such perfection will be realized only when Jesus returns. Okay. Now, wisdom from God for trials. When uh, James spoke about this in verse five, believers ought to have an undivided faith. You know, asking for wisdom for from uh, their ever wise and, and, and all generous God. OK, now James addresses the believer who lacks wisdom in handling trials. Wisdom, as in the Old Testament, is a God given and God centered discernment. And you guys need to remember that here. Wisdom is a God centered and God um discernment. Okay. It's God given. Now regarding the practical issues in life, we need to focus on God, uh, centered, uh, and given discernment. Okay. Now wisdom comes from prayer for, for God's help. God gives generously, meaning with, with single minded liberality and without reproach. He does not want anyone to hesitate to come to him. Now in verse six, when James talks about faith, a settled trust and confidence in God based on his character and promises as revealed in scripture. You can cross reference this with Hebrews chapter 11, verse one. Now doubting, uh, vacillating between trusting God and trusting the world or one's own natural abilities. That's in verse six, when James is talking about people who doubt. Okay. Now this makes a person like a wave of the sea, you know, a picture of instability and uncertainty in verse seven and eight, a person who doubts God's goodness dishonors God. Okay. Now such a person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And now you are finding out why a lot of your, your prayers are not being answered. Because James makes this clear. A person who doubts should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, since he is unsure whether God is good or, or will do good, he is a double-minded man. That is, in two minds, torn between God and the world, and is therefore unstable in all his ways. Mm. Now, verses 9 through 11 talks about the place of rich and poor before God. 
Now, both poverty and riches bring enormous pressure on a person to focus on the world rather than on Christ. Thus, James exhorts the poor to boast of glory in their high status in Christ. The lowly brother will be exalted or vindicated by God. Now, in contrast, James exhorts the rich to boast in their humility. One, by realizing that their wealth is temporary and that it brings them no advantage before God. God does not put the rich over the poor. And two, by identifying with the poor in their affliction. Now, the church is to be a countercultural community, which reverses the values of the world. I want you to cross-reference this with chapter 2, verses 2 and 4, which is where we, we will eventually get there. Now, given the context, James seems to be saying that the challenges of, the po of, of, of poverty and wealth may be one of the greatest trials for Christians, as would be suggested by his immediate emphasis um, that we just talked, that we will get to in verse uh, 12. On the blessed status of those who remain steadfast on the trial. Now, James also echoes Jesus's warning that you cannot serve God and money, which is in Matthews chapter six, verse 24, write that down and read it. Now, when James talks about reward for those who endure, James returns to the theme introduced in verse two, crown of life, alludes not to the jewel encrusted or um, encrusted ruler's crown, but to a laurel wreath or wreath given to winners in athletic games. First Corinthians 925, you can cross-reference and victorious emperors. Now the reward for faithful perseverance is eternal life with all its abundant blessings. Okay, you can cross-reference that in Revelations chapter 2, verse 10. Now, the process of temptation, and we're going to uh, go through the commentary of, of verses 13 through 18. James turns to the other side of trials, namely when testing become, <laughs> becomes temptation. Okay. Now, in 13, you know, God, uh, God allows his people to be tested. Now, you can remember Abraham in Genesis chapter uh, 22, um, Israel, Exodus in 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 4, and Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32, 31, so that their character is strengthened. That's one of the reasons that God allows testing to happen to his people. But he never tempts us, i.e. lures people into sin. Since God cannot be tempted with evil and he is unreservedly good, he would never entice human beings to sin or seek to harm their faith. Now, tempted is, is, is the verb form of the, the noun translated trial. That's why you often hear me in some of my episodes say temptation, trial or test. That's what tempted is. It is a, temp a, a temptation is a trial or test. Okay. Now, but the context shows in, in James verse 12 shows that different senses of the word are intended. God, you know, allows trials in order to strengthen the Christian's faith. He doesn't bring them, 
but he allows them because you got to remember we are living in a world that is controlled by the devil and he is going to throw every temptation trial or test at God's people. So God allows it so that our faith can be strengthened. We need to understand that he never tempts. However, because he never desires his people to sin. That's why now Christians should, should never blame God when they do wrong. Never blame God at all. When a temptation trial or test comes now, verse 14, James talks about lured and enticed. Now a fishing metaphor for drawing prey away from shelter in order to trap them with a deadly hook. Here it is. The person's evil desire that ensnares them. You can also uh, cross-reference this to first Peter chapter five, verse eight through nine. It is Satan who seeks to devour. Sin is never God's fault. Never sin and God are completely separate and completely opposite. Now in verse 15, uh, the picture changes to a, a birth rebirth metaphor as full grown desire bears its own child sin, which itself grows into maturity and bears the, the, the grandchild, which is death. Now this dramatic <laughs> depiction shows the terrible result when one gives into temptation. Now James verse 17 talks about when James moves from evil temptations, uh, which God never gives. I want to keep emphasizing that to the observation that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God. Cross-reference Matthew uh, 7 verse 11, as in James 1 5. Now James reminds the readers of God's goodness. In their trials, God is not tempting them to sin. But the difficulties in life are intended to strengthen and perfect them and make them more like God. Now, God's intentions for them are always for good. Cross-reference Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And when James says that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, he's trying to tell you God is not associated with evil in any way, shape, or form. Okay? Now, there is nothing in this world that is truly good that has any other origin than from above. Okay, namely heaven, you know, descending from the father of lights, which refers to God as creator of the heavenly lights. You can read Psalms chapter 74, verse 16 and cha uh, chapter 136, verses 7 through 9. Now, a prime example of his good gifts. That is what these verses are. They are in reference to a prime example of God's good gifts. Now, God is unchanging in his character and therefore in his giving of good, unlike the variation of the night changing today or the shifting shadow caused by the sun or the moon. God doesn't change. Now, verse 18 talks about brought us forth by the word of truth speaks of spiritual salvation. Now with us, uh, meaning believers, the word of truth being, being the gospel and brought forth, that is from the womb being a metaphor for the new birth. Now the first fruits, excuse me, the first fruits of the harvest. And I want you to cross reference first fruits of the harvest with Exodus 
23, verse 16 through 19, Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 14, are pioneer believers who are a prelude to, to, to further conversions yet to come. Cross-reference Romans chapter 16, um, verse 5, and 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15. Now, Paul is, going, is getting ready to move in from verses 19 through 27, hearing and doing the word. Now, the central theme of this section is practical Christianity mandated by the word of truth, which is the gospel. Verse 18. And characterized by both truly hearing and then um, resolutely doing the truth. Okay. I have to search for, for a word in my mind now. Obedience is the hallmark of the true child of God. This is what James is trying to get across obedience. Okay. Now hearers of the word, James encourages the church to pursue hearing the word and to avoid hasty speech and unrighteous anger. Now in verse 19, James echoes of, of Jewish wisdom tradition on the, the, the misuse of the tongue and the anger that can result from it. And I've often uh, said this in many of my episodes, you can cross reference Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, um, chapter 11, verse 12, chapter 15, verse one, chapter 17 and 28. And we need to be quick to hear now because the tongue, let me tell you, death and life is in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. That's in Proverbs. And eating its fruit, meaning you will be the recipient of your words. That's why it is very important that you speak positive words over your family, over your children, yourself, your job, over a project you're working on. Because you can speak failure in that project you're working on with your mouth. Now, when we say quick to hear, we are talking about lack of listening combined with lack of restraint in speech. You know, it leads to ill-tempered action. You know, slow to anger does not mean that all human anger is sinful. And you can cross-reference Ephesians 4.26, where Paul tells the Ephesians, be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Okay? So you can be angry, just don't sin when you're angry. Now, but the quick-tempered, selfish anger of the world, the anger of man, which uh, is in James 1.20, betrays lack of trust in God and lack of love for others. Now in verse 120, uh, meaning chapter one, um, verse 20, the self-reliant anger of man, even when directed against some wrongdoing, fails to recognize that mere human reproach cannot change another person's, another person's heart. And thus it does not produce the righteousness of God nor indeed is such anger fully righteous itself. Now God is holy and righteous, requiring that his people uh, emulate his righteous character. Now righteousness here is not Pauline, meaning the apostle Paul, okay? <laughs> Legal or uh, forensic righteousness proclaimed in God's court of law. You can uh, cross-reference this with Romans chapter 3, verses 20, and chapter 5, verse 10. But it's closer to the usage of the Old Testament, Isaiah 61, 3, and Jesus, who speaks uh, in Matthew 3, 15, Matthew 5, 6, 
uh, verse 10 and um, verse 20 and chapter 6, verse 1. Write these down. We're still talking about Matthew. Uh, verse 6 and 1 and verse 33 and chapter 21 and verse 32. Yes, I studied all this and you have to study all this too. Now, in the sense of conducting one's life by the will of God, according to his standards, not our standards, God's standards. Now, verse 21, put away all filthiness. Now, pictures the, the stripping off of dirty clothes. Okay, cross-reference cross uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 12, Ephesians 4, 22, and Colossians 3, 8. Write those scriptures down so that you can study them later. Now, based on a desire to have nothing to do with the dirt here, moral evil ever again. Now, in place of filthy behavior, the implanted word must take root in God's people. Now, this idea of God planting his revealed truth reflects Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14. The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. And especially the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, meaning save your souls. Now, save your souls refers here to progressive sanctification and ultimately the completion of God's saving work on the last day. Now, and I don't want you guys to, uh, because I have a lot of notes here, I don't want you guys to misunderstand. When God says, I will plant, uh, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. He's talking about the seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit, which is summed up in one law, one word, love. Love thy neighbor as yourself. That's the law that is implanted in our hearts. If you accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, doers of the word. James is getting ready to go there. Uh, verses 22 uh, through 25, doers of the word. Now, hearing the word without action is self-deceptive. And while hearing that results in doing the word is a blessing. Now being doers of the word and not hearers only is the only proper response to the word of God. Not only the gospel, but the entirety of scripture, allowing it to take root in, in your life. Now, this is where people were getting confused saying that James's epistle was contradicting Paul's epistle to the Galatians. No, it wasn't. They were talking about two different things. Paul was talking about salvation. We are saved by grace through faith alone, not of works. Uh, what Paul was telling the uh, Ephesians and the Philippians and the Galatians. Okay. Um, what James is saying here is if you proclaim to be converted over to Christianity and you have Christ in your heart, if you have the love of God in your heart, you need to produce some works to prove it. That's what James is talking about. Now, when James is talking about in verses 23 and 24, looking intently at his natural face in a mirror and then forgetting what he he was he was like demonstrates the folly, the foolishness of examining oneself in God's mirror of the implanted word. Now, me talking, we, you got to remember, we're talking about being a doer of the word. You know, not just a hearer. You hear the word say, oh, yeah, I'm good. But you don't do anything. You don't produce any works. And you got to remember, we were created to do good works. Now, you don't do good works to be saved. Make that clear. That's the difference between Paul's letter to, to the Gentiles and James' letter to these Jews. 
We don't work or do good works to be saved, but because we are saved, good works should come out of us. That's what James is talking about. Um, now, uh, let me let me go over this again. Now, when James is talking about, you know, intently uh, looking intently at his natural face in a mirror and then forgetting what he was he was like demonstrates the foolishness of examining one oneself in God's mirror. Now, of the implanted word and then doing nothing about it. When one sees imperfections, as when looking in a mirror, common sense tells us we need to do something about it. If you don't like what you see in the mirror, do something about it. This is what James is talking about. Now, verse 25, the law of liberty, which we can cross reference in, and we will get to it in, in chapter two, verse 12. In James, the law and the word are two different ways of describing the same reality. Earlier, the word of truth, which was in verse 18, is the gospel of Christ. And the law here refers to the Old Testament law as uh, as it ha has been interpreted and fulfilled in Christ. Now, though the Old Testament law was holy and righteous and good, Romans 7, 12, it had no power by itself to enable sinful people to conform to it. Thus, the Old Testament law did not liberate God's people, but enslaved them. As Paul taught in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, uh, and chapter 4, verse 7. We can also cross-reference Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and um, chapter, no, Romans, because I don't want to get this mixed up. I want you to go to the right scriptures. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and verse 20, Okay. And then chapter five, verse 20 and chapter six, verse 14 through 15 and chapter seven, verses one through 25. That's in Romans. Eventually we will tour Romans, but the law is one of liberty. Now, when it comes along with the word of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to change hearts, it is the law of liberty. Okay. Now, true practical religion when James start talking to them about religion. Now this section on, on obedience concludes with three characteristics of the, the one whose religion is pure and undefiled. That is one who does the word. Now, first he refuses self deception and bridles his tongue, which means he keeps a tight rein on his speech like a bridle controlling a horse. Now, second, he shows mercy and love to the oppressed orphans and widows, you know, were frequent Old Testament examples of this, which is in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10, 18, Isaiah chapter one, verse 17, Jeremiah uh, chapter seven, verses five through seven, because of their particularly helpless state. Now on widows in New Testament times, we can see first uh, Timothy chapter five, verse three through 16. Third, he remains unstained from the world. Now, James uses the sacrificial language of the lamb without blemish. Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 19. Now, James uses this to describe the pure religious person. Now, the sin of partiality. Now, the problem of the poor and the rich. 
uh, already emphasized in um, chapter one, verse nine through 11 and verse 27 now comes to center stage with this warning about discriminating against the poor in favor of the wealthy in the Christian assembly. Okay. When we are gathered together, ushers, you do not put the rich before the poor. Just because someone comes in dressed in a $600 suit and someone comes in looking like they just came from under a building, you are to treat them the same because if you do not, you are in sin. You are out of the will of God. Now, when James talk, talk, talks about preferring the wealthy over the poor in the assembly, James shows the fundamental incapability of holding faith in Christ and showing partiality among people. Now, we have entered into chapter two. I am quite sure you guys were already aware. I just went on through when we talked about, um, let me read those scriptures first so you can know where we were. Chapter two, when brother says, show no partiality as you hold uh, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Verse two, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, I already gave the commentary for this, fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. Verse three, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Verse four, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James said that's evil for you to do that, for you to show partiality and show favor toward the rich because God doesn't. Now, verse five, listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Verse six, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Yes, they are. And the ones who drag you into court, if you behind in something, old taxes, you will be dragged into court. Verse seven, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable uh, name by which you were called blaspheme Jesus? Or not the rich who do that? Verse eight, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Verse nine, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. <laughs> Did y'all hear that? Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Verse 11, for he who says do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you murder. You have become a transgressor of the law because the law judges these sins. If you don't walk in sin, you won't be judged. Mean, which brings us back to the fruit of the spirit. If you walk in the spirit, uh, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Remember when Paul wrote to the, uh, to the uh, Galatians, either Galatians or Ephesians. Um, verse 12, so speak and so act. As those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, meaning freedom. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. 
Meaning God won't have mercy on you if you don't have mercy on others. When you go to the judgment seat of Christ, not for condemnation to be thrown in the lake of fire. Let's make that clear because we have false teachers that tell you contrary to what I just said. If you are saved and sealed until the day of redemption, we are not going before the great white throne judgment. That's for non-believers. They are going to be told why they're going to hell. And you can't change at the great white throne, which is why I always say the day you hear his voice. If you hear it today, harden not your heart. You need to accept Christ today because those who are in Christ are going to go before the judgment seat of Christ for our rewards. Okay. On verse 13 again, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Faith without works is dead. Now, um, James is getting ready to explain why faith without works is dead. He gives some excellent explanations, by the way. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, there are different levels of faith is what you need to understand. Let me keep reading because I um, uh, want to get to a very important point. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, verse 16, excuse me. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Verse 17. So also faith by itself if it does not have works, it's dead. See, Paul is talking about, not Paul. If you make, if you hear me make a mistake and say, Paul, please know that I'm talking about James. Because we are so used to reading letters written by Paul, the Apostle Paul. Now I'm reading a letter written by the Apostle James. I may get them confused. But James is saying, you can't pray for a brother or sister to be warm or to get food or uh, to have shelter. And you don't provide it for them. That's what he's saying. Faith without works is dead. We can pray that this person is going to receive uh, uh, a better uh, life or uh, is going to receive shelter, food and water and clothing. But you give them that first and then God let God work his way because this stuff is not going to fall out of the sky. We need to understand that James is clear here. See, that's one of the reasons I chose the ESV because it is self-explanatory. Well, now let's read 16 again. And one of you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things, meaning a coat needed for the body. What good is that? Verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Need I explain that more? Hmm. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, James says, and I will show you my faith by my works. He's saying that if you have faith in God, especially if you are a Christian, a believer, a child of God, and you have no good works to show this, you have to question whether or not you're in the faith. Just like the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church, I question whether or not you are in the faith with your behavior. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. Oh, this is important. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, meaning tremble. Even the demons know that there is only one God and they tremble. So what is the difference between you and the demon? Demons ain't going to do good works. But the people who truly believe in God through his son, Jesus, will. 
That's what Paul is saying. Not Paul. James is saying right here. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless? Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And if y'all want to, uh, let me um see if I can uh, get some um, cross reference here. Oh, now examples of Abraham and, and, and Rahab. Now James continues his, his rebuttal by citing the examples of Abraham and Rahab who were, were both shown by their deeds to be righteous. Now, um, Abraham was justified by works. Um, on the surface, James may seem to contradict Paul, i.e. Paul denies that Abraham was justified by works. Remember, uh, Paul said Abraham was justified by faith, but they're talking about two different situations that Abraham was in. Um, you can read Romans four and two, arguing from Genesis 15 and six that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, Romans four and three. However, James assertion in this verse that Abraham was justified by works is based not on Genesis 15 uh, uh, verse six, but on Genesis 22 verse nine through 10. Y'all can write that down and read it and see the difference and see the difference. Uh, where many years later, Abraham began to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. That's in Genesis 22, 9, 10. That was accounted to his works. Thus, James apparently has a different sense of the word justify in view here as evidenced by the different scripture passages and the different events in Abraham's life to which James and Paul refer. The primary way in which Paul uses the word justify uh, is the Greek word dikoyu. It, it emphasizes the sense of being declared righteous by God through faith. Now on the basis of Jesus atoning sacrifice, Romans 3, 24, 26, whereas the primary way that James uses the word justify here in James 2, uh, 21 seems to emphasize the way in which works demonstrate that someone has been justified as evidenced by the good works that the person does. Uh, you can cross-reference this with Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 and 37. Now, some others hold a similar view, which understands um, justify. Now, here to mean to declare someone to be righteous because at the final judgment, the person's works give evidence of true saving faith. Okay, and I talked about that a few minutes ago is that if you claim to be saved and have the seal of God in your heart, good works follow that. You are not saved because of your good works, so you need to get that out of your head. You are saved, uh, you do good works because you are saved. And there is a huge difference, and you can uh, read Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Now, faith was completed by his works. James does not uh, disagree that faith alone saves. Okay, Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 28. Um, completed often means bring to maturity. Now, full-grown and genuine faith is seen in the good deeds it produces. 
Now in verse 23, James uses Genesis 15, 6 in a way that complements rather than contradicts Paul. When Paul spoke in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 9 and Galatians chapter 3 and 6, for he sees it as having been fulfilled. Uh, James 22, we just spoke of. Now in Abraham's offering of Isaac in Genesis 22, James centers on Abraham's act of obedience, while Paul centers on God's declaration of Abraham's righteousness. Now, Abraham was called a friend of God, in contrast to those who have no acts of obedience to prove their claims to faith and are therefore seen to be friends of this world. Now, when James says not by faith alone, James again, seems at first to contradict Paul's teachings that one is justified by faith alone, Romans 3.28, but the two are compatible. Now for James, faith alone means a bogus kind of faith, mere intellectual, you know, a, a mere intellectual agreement without a genuine personal trust in Christ that bears fruit in one's life. Now on justified, you know, you can go back to uh, James chapter two, verse 21, James, in, in agreement with Paul, argues that true faith is never alone, that it always produces works. Cross-reference Ephesians 2 and 10. The apostles were on the same page. The audience was different. Okay. James, in verse 25, Rahab, the prostitute, believed the stories of God's uh, saving work for the Hebrews. Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Write that down. So at some personal risk, she hid the Jewish spies from her own people, then lowered them on a rope so they could escape. Joshua 2.15. Thus she became a model of faith completed in works. Now, we, 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 we need to get this. Rahab was a prostitute, but she knew that these men were men of God. And that her people were after them. So what she did was protect them. She provided salvation for them. Okay. Because I told you salvation comes in different levels. You can save a person by um, paying their rent. If they're getting ready to be evicted the next day. That's salvation. And in this case Rahab. She, she saved these people from her own people. She had faith. Now. Oh, we are getting ready to go into chapters three, four, and five. Chapter three, verse one. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater striction. Stay in your lane. If you are not called to teach the word of God, stay in your lane. Those who teach, such as myself, will be judged with greater strictness. Because we can cause people to fall. People are dependent on us. People trust us. They rely on us to tell them the truth. Everybody don't know this word. Here, everyone don't know how to deliver this word. And you can cause people to fall. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Meaning we ain't perfect. And we could stumble, especially if we don't know what we're talking about. Able also to bridle his whole body. Verse three, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they may obey us, we guide their, their whole bodies as well. The bits is our words that we are sharing with people. 
And with our words, we are able to, to turn someone's whole body around to start walking in either uh, the will of the Lord or the will of the world. Verse four, look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small ruder where, um, wherever the wheel of the pilot directs it. The ruder is small and is underneath the ship. Verse five. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of, of great things. Our tongue is small, but our tongue has some power. It has fire in it. Look at what's happening with the president of the United States, what he says and the people that believe what he says and what they are doing. And what he said is 99.99.999% wrong. And people are following him. Oh, but, but because he is a leader, God is watching. His day is coming. I don't pray for his day to come, but I know it's coming according to this word. Um, the latter part of verse five. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. You can th drop a cigarette in a forest and think you put it out. And next thing, thing you know, 150,000 acres have burned as a result of that small spark. Verse six. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Remember what you say over your children, over your house, over your husband, over your wife. Do you, you understand the tongue has power? If you constantly telling your child, he's nothing going to be nothing, never will be nothing. Uh, he's crazy. He's bad. That's what he's going to be. So don't be shocked when your son or your daughter turn out like that. You just spoke it over him every day. Verse seven, for every kind of beast and bird or, or uh, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Verse eight, but no human being can tame the tongue, meaning that we need to put it in check. OK, that's what that means. Don't mean that we can't tame it. That's why he's telling us we need to tame it. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Verse nine, with it, we bless our Lord and father and with it, we curse people who who are made in the likeness of God, verse 10, meaning our sisters and brothers, from the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not so to be. You shouldn't be cursing somebody out in one breath and then turning around and blessing your sister or brother in another breath. Can't be. Can't be that. Verse 11, does a spring pour forth uh, from the same opening both fresh and salt water. Verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What James is saying here is you are what your mouth says you are. Oh, that's simplified. You are what your, the words your mouth is producing. Okay. Verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works. And remember, Jesus said a tree is known by his fruit here. A tree bears the fruit that's in it. Okay. In the meekness of wisdom, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and evil vile practice. Did y'all hear that? Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure. It's unstained. Then peaceable. 
gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, impartial and sincere, verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. See, the wisdom from above doesn't curse people out. The wisdom from above doesn't show partiality. The wisdom from above is gentle toward everybody and peaceful. Not rioting in the streets, but we can't really judge the people that are protesting and rioting today because they are earthly people. That's the earthly way. See, I protest on my knees through prayer. You have to remember verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. Meaning you don't know everything. You are open to reason. You are full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Oh, verse 18 again. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Ah. If you sow peace, you're going to, your harvest will, you will reap peace. Now we are going to go into chapter four. Verse one, what causes squirrels? I'm sorry. What causes quarrels <laughs> and what causes fights among you? They were fighting at the Jerusalem church. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Verse two. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet what someone else has and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles as well. You asking God wrongly, which is why some of your prayers are not being answered so that you could spend it on your passions. Verse four, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Why is James mixing this with verse four? Because usually the next sentence is explanatory of the previous sentence. Because if you, your desire is always on your passions, you are friends with this world. That's why. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You are making yourself an enemy of God if you are striving for and focusing on and meditating on the things of this world. Verse five. Or do you suppose it is to no, no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, we know that God is a jealous God. And over the spirit that he made to dwell in us is the Holy Spirit. Okay. So you convict the Holy Spirit if it's in you. And while you are having desires for the things of this world, your own personal passions, rather than looking out for things of, uh, 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 for, um, looking out for others and the things that they need. Okay. Verse six, but he who gives more grace. Mm. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I'm telling you about proud and pride because in Proverbs, it's, it is clear. It says pride comes before destruction 
and a haughty spirit, meaning a proud spirit before a fall. Proud people, went, they ought to prepare themselves to fall. And I will tell you this, it happened to someone I know dearly. And it happened to me. See, if you do not put your pride in check, trust me, humiliation is going to follow. And you can't be humiliated unless you have an audience. I learned. I am very much humble today. I have family members that are proud. And if they don't change their ways, they are going to fall before everybody who they put themselves above. If you exalt yourself above others, trust me, humility is going to come. Because while you are walking in, in proudness and your pride, you are walking in sin so God can't cover you. You ain't under grace. That's why it says, therefore, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, you ain't under grace if you walk in, 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 in self-exhortation. Let's say that, lifting yourself above everyone else. And when that fall happens, it's going to fall. You're going to fall hard. I want you to keep your eye on this president. Ain't praying for it, but when he fall, he's going to fall hard. Hard. Proud and pride is a sin. Verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, oftentimes people tell you, resist the devil, child, and he will flee from you. But they are not telling you what the beginning of verse 7 says. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Then sub, uh, the devil will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. You have to do it. You sinners and purify your hearts. You have to do it. You double minded. Verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We are talking about your pride. <laughs> you will be, it will be turned to mourn and to weep. And let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy and your joy to gloom. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. If you humble yourselves, if you walk in humility, God will lift you up. Stop trying to lift you up and lift yourself up and please man. You need to stop trying to do that. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Um, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. What he's saying is they're not even keeping the law, but you want to judge others who, who fall and, and sin as it relates to the law. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? My Lord, he's talking about your sisters and brothers in the congregation, in the fellowship. Who are you? Verse 13, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go in, in, oh, wait, hold up. Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade, talking about the money makers, and make a profit. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. A lot of people misinterpret this uh, as healing. God, this is not talking about healing. And James is going to clarify this in, in chapter 5. 
let me tell you something. If you pray the prayer of petition, because that's what this is, uh, as it relates to travel, should you be doing this and should you be doing that? Saying if it's, if it's uh, the Lord's will over a sick individual, you, uh, you better go ahead on and make arrangements because that person is on their way to a grave. You cannot, why you think a lot of Christians are dying? Because they are not being taught this word. They are not being told when you use what prayer, because we have different types of prayer and I taught on that. What prayer do we use for healing? And James is going to tell us it's the prayer of faith that heals the sick. Not this. He is talking about those whose mind is on their money and making money on top of money and want to go and travel and trade, but ignoring the wage earners not paying their employees what they should be paying their employees. Walmart, Amazon, Target, making billions of dollars and not sharing it with the employees who are making them rich. That's what Paul is talking about. Not Paul, James. Okay, I already warned y'all I might make a mistake and say Paul. Verse 16, as it, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We know sin separate, separates us from God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is still eternal life. Life, what, what James is saying here, you can cut your life short. Not focusing on the things of God and focusing on the things of this world. You can cut your life short. Now, he, uh, we, are, we are entering into chapter 5 where he warns the rich. OK, come now, you rich weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Oh, because it's coming. Verse two, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten. That's what's going to happen to your riches. Verse three, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid upon treasure in the last days. Verse four, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, not paying them what they are worth, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Almighty God. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of, of slaughter. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered and Murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's the righteous person who doesn't fight back. He didn't resist, resist you, but you murdered this person. He's talking to the Jews here. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now he's talking about the Jews who are righteous, who are doing the right thing. He's telling them to be patient and don't fight back. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the, er the early and the late rains. Verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophet's who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Job was patient, but let me tell you something. Job didn't have faith. 
because he was accusing God of doing everything to him, but he knew God exists. He didn't turn his back on God. He just started accusing God. And I did a, a episode on, uh, the story of Job, why did God allow him to suffer? And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful because when Job repented, God showed compassion and mercy and gave Job seven times more than what he lost. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation, meaning judgment, meaning don't promise somebody you're going to do something for them and then you don't do it. Oh, and then you will fall into judgment. Just say, yes, I'm going to do it. Don't say, I swear. I swear to God. I swear on the hairs of my head. I swear on my children. And the next thing you know, you don't do it. You're going to fall under judgment. Just say, yes, I'll do it. Okay, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, here's where it gets interesting, where James tells you about another type of prayer, the prayer of faith and what it does. Healing, healing falls under this. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord if you're happy. Verse 14, um, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. It didn't say if the Lord wills. It says, the, this is definite. The prayer of faith saves the sick, it heals the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Because sin is all, always associated with illness, by the way. Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of, righteous, of, of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Verse 18. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now, Elijah had prayed that it not rain as punishment for the king at that time. I can't remember the king's name, but guess what? I might be able to pull it up in my notes. Uh, king Ahab. Okay. And Israel for adultery. And uh, he prayed. Uh, that it may not rain and it didn't rain for three years and six months. Okay. <laughs> it did not rain for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, sisters and brothers. And then the Lord opened up the heavens and allowed it to rain so that the crops would grow. Um, let's read verse 18 again before we close this out. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. But, but Elijah had faith behind his prayer. And of course, the king Ahab was so evil, you know, God accommodated uh, Elijah. The verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, verse 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, let me elaborate on this since that is the last verse of the epistle by James, um, save his soul from death. You know, it, it, it doesn't mean physical death. 
Uh, you can cross-reference this with 1 Corinthians 11.30, but it means spiritual death. You can cross-reference this with 1 John 5.16 and 17. Spiritual death meaning you are disconnected from God. That's what that means. Now, timely intervention is important. Galatians 6, 1, Hebrews 3.13 will save his soul and bring forgiveness from God. Now, the person who saves the sinner in this case is the person who restores the one who has fallen away. Now, ultimately, of course, only the Lord saves a person. What he is saying is you with your kind words and your spiritual words uh, reminding this individual that Christ died for him on the cross. His sins are forgiven. Don't throw it away because Jesus said himself, those that endures until the end shall be saved. Endure, endures what? The persecution, the trials, the tribulation, and stays in the faith. Okay? So don't leave the faith. Stay with, look, you are better off staying with Jesus. Now the one who restores the person will cover the many sins of the one who had strayed. Now for the one who returns from the way of error, receives forgiveness. Again, only God can cover sin. But Christians can be agents of God's forgiveness. Okay? We are agents. Now we have reached the very end of James. Yes, the letter to the Jerusalem church. And I tell you, what we have taken away from this is even though James was talking to the Jews, we must remember faith without works is dead. If you, and I'm putting on my shoes now, uh, folks, um, so bear with me. I'm going to talk. I can multitask. If you are going to pray for a sister or brother who is in need and you have the means to help them, shame on you. You need to attach your works, which is giving them the, what they need to your faith. Okay? And remember, it is the prayer of faith that heals the sick. Okay? Not if it be God's will. And James clarified that. If you use that, or if it be God's will, excuse me, is a petition prayer. Well, if you go on somewhere, you don't know what's ahead of you when you go. And that's why you say, if it be God's will, my sister wants me to fly to Michigan on our birthday weekend, which is Labor Day weekend, uh, for the uh, signing and release of her first book. I want to be there. But right now, if it's God's will, I'll be there. Right now, I don't know. And I told her that based on the pandemic that we are experiencing throughout the entire world, I don't know what's going to happen. So I don't know. I can't give her a definite answer, but I sure enough want to be there. But if by chance I can't make it, she know my spirit will be with her. And I love her dearly and wishing her the best. But right now I don't know. So which means I still may be able to go. So with that said, saints, make sure you continue to social distance. Uh, wear your mask if you are in public. Uh, love on your sisters and brothers. If they are in need and you have it, help them. Because it's God's will for us to do that. Um, make sure that you pray for the body of Christ. Pray for your sisters and brothers. Confess your faults to one another. Discuss your sins with one another so that we can lift each other up and encourage one another. Because we're not perfect, but we are to strive for perfection. Okay, we're not there yet. Okay, so until next time, look, I don't know what I'm going to be teaching on next week. I don't know. Send me an email.
uh, give me some ideas. But I'm sure the Holy Spirit would lead me because I was going to teach her on First John two days ago until the Holy Spirit said, no, I want you to teach uh, the epistle of James, the Lord's brother, to the Jews in the Jerusalem church. So until next week, peace out. All right. I hope you were enlightened by this message. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please send your questions to trustgod55.cd at gmail.com. Or you can send me a direct message by clicking on the message button located on my podcast, Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, and Radio Public, and submit your remarks. You can also support my podcast financially by accessing all my podcasts and clicking on the support this podcast button. Whatever you choose to donate will be greatly appreciated. I am praying for God to give you a return on your seed. Praise God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, as it relates to sowing a seed, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Hallelujah. Now, God will give you a return on your seed as long as you sow your seed in good ground with a cheerful heart. The key is having a cheerful heart. Now, until next time, brothers and sisters, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We walk by faith, not by what we see. I am your host and teacher, Dr. Kamala D, rightly dividing the word of truth in peace and love. I thank you for tuning in and I hope to see you next time.